I'm John Eulis. And I'm John Walker. And you're listening to the final installment of Nine Secret Eps, the podcast where we talk about the music and career of They Might Be Giants. And just like we always do in the final installment of Nine Secret Eps, it's time to read a listener email. Right, we finally got one. <clears throat> Brant Clatterbone of Hillchase, Montana writes, Are you ever going to do an app that doesn't start with one of those doofy skits? They're nothing more than a thin excuse to play with cheesy sound effects. You're better than this. And then like 30 exclamation points. Wow, thanks, Brant. You're better than this too. The truth is we did decide not to risk anything corny at the beginning of this final app because we have such a special guest and we don't want to cheapen it. Yeah, best to just put on our leather jackets, fire up our microphones, and get to it. Exactly. It's not about the bells and whistles. It's about human voices engaged in communication. It's why I record all my podcasts in the most authentic way possible, atop an elephant. And I, atop a younger, smaller, more hopeful elephant. You know, my elephant can hear you. And here we are in the vestibule, the part of the show where we take care of any business that we need to up top. And we have a few things to talk about this time, but you know, this is our last time in the vestibule and it's a good vestibule and I've enjoyed it. And so I don't know about you, but I'm in no hurry to rush for the finish line. No, why rush to the finish line when we can savor these sweet final secret moments? (laughs) You have no idea how long I've waited to hear those words. (laughs) Well, one thing that we should talk about is that at the time that we're putting this episode out, John Flansburg is, is recovering from injury sustained in an automobile accident. He was being driven home uh, by a driving service and was T-boned by a drunk driver. And luckily everyone survived. But I mean, luck being what it is, people don't drink and drive. Just don't do it. It's not funny. It's not cute. Uh, No matter how many times you've gotten lucky in the past, you can't count on it again. So just don't do it. Everybody knows that, right? But Flansburg was hurt fairly seriously, a lot of broken ribs. You see that sentence that starts John Flansburg and contains the words serious accident. Your eyes are just rushing to the part where it says something about him being okay or him him expected to recover. And that does seem to be the case. Um, you know, Flansburg is, is, is tough and he's he's got a lot of people around him that care for him. So things could be worse, but I mean, seriously, this is no picnic for him. And um, I don't know, for me, it's just been kind of heartwarming to see as this story broke, the amount of people, uh, fellow musicians, uh, other celebrities, civilians like us, who who just were expressing how much they appreciate this man and, and how, how glad we are to have him with us and how glad we are to sort of exist on earth with him. He's a very strong guy. He's going to get through this quickly. Um... And we're sending all our love. I know in the uh, Facebook group, Mike Buffington is organizing basically a care package where he's collecting letters from everyone who wants to participate in the Facebook group and then forwarding those to Flans by mail. Um, So he's about to get a big sack of get well cards from all the hardcore TMBG fans. Good old Mike Buffington. Uh, That is such a sweet thing to do. I can't help but think of the scene in uh, Miracle on 34th Street, where all the letters to Santa are dumped out in the courtroom <laughs> to sort of prove, quote unquote, that, that Santa Claus is real. So this just might prove that Flansburg is real. I'm so afraid right now. Yeah. By the time you hear 
Yeah, another aspect of this moment in time for the band that we should definitely mention is that when Flansburg was hit, he was being driven home from the show that was to be the kickoff show of their nearly completely sold out and oft postponed flood anniversary tour that was originally supposed to happen in the spring of 2020. I've had tickets to a show in DC since late 2019, um, and that show has now been taken off the calendar a fifth time because it was supposed to happen two nights after the night Flansburg was in the accident. Now, all of those shows will be rescheduled, and we can all agree the most important thing is Flansburg getting better. But still, I think it's worth noting that this is a bummer for the fans, the band, the crew, I'm sure. Um, I think this tour was kind of starting to feel like it was like a, a catharsis we had all earned. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's delayed again, thats it's frustrating. We'll, we'll get by, but it's frustrating. Yeah, they were all lined up to uh, do a full month of shows, but, you know, the show will go on. They're not canceled, they're postponed, and uh, I'm sure they'll be better than ever when they do return. Yeah, and the upshot is uh, you were able to attend that uh, first and only show from uh, uh, the Bowery on June 8th, 2022. I would love to hear a Euless report on uh, how, how the band are doing. How does it look from the front row? This was, uh, as you know, the first They Might Be Giants concert in over two years, the last one being in March 2020. Um, and it was it was a really great day. I, I showed up around noon <laughs> because I like to make a whole day out of these New York shows. And, uh, you know, just meeting friends in line, familiar faces from previous TMBG shows and uh, people from the Facebook group. And uh, just that part alone, super fun. Then we got in the venue. They handed out these new paper tiaras uh, that I'm sure you've seen pictures of at this point, but they say TMBG in these kind of dangly letters. Um, and the, the show itself was uh, was wonderful. They had their uh, Triceratops horn section, uh, which is Stan Harrison, Dan Levine, and Kurt Ram. They played the whole Flood album, shuffled around the entire show. Sometimes they just delegate it to uh, one of the two sets. But they, uh, you know, they had songs throughout. They had some new horn arrangements of, of classic songs. They debuted two songs from Book, uh, Moonbeam Rays and Synopsis for Latecomers, which both sounded great. I put videos of those on YouTube. It was a triumphant show. The John seemed so happy. Uh, and, you know, I, all we can hope is that they can continue the tour very soon. And and screw that drunk driver. Thank God. Yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, this type of setback, as serious as it is, it's the kind of thing that's been on my mind as I was editing this episode because Jamie Lincoln Kitman, our guest, the band's longtime manager, um, states here and elsewhere pretty unequivocally that one of the things he most admires about They Might Be Giants is the way that they roll with the punches, the way that they respond to problems uh, without getting too down, and also the way that they don't allow successes to go to their heads too much. So, um, you know, he has a unique perspective on that. He, he's been around since the beginning. Basically, ever since They Might Be Giants have had shit that needed managing, Jamie Lincoln Kitman has been around to help manage that shit, and he has only very recently stepped back from, from that full-time role. Jamie is also a lawyer and a writer and a car nut, 
and you'll hear him talk about those things. Uh, fans of the band may know how funny Jamie is and what a good writer he is from the piece he wrote, Our Roadies, Ourselves, which was printed in February 1988 by Automobile Magazine, but has been widely shared amongst uh, followers of They Might Be Giants because it is a kind of a rare, uh, very... Um, almost like behind the scenes view of the sort of hard scrabble routines of, of, of they might be giants existence on the road. Um, and it's a piece that appeared in automobile magazine, uh, kind of under the, under the auspices of it being a, uh, a story about doing all of that touring in a, in a specifically in a Plymouth Voyager minivan. Uh, so I recommend people seek that story out. But for all these reasons, I, I knew Jamie would be a forthcoming and amusing conversationalist. I think what surprised me was just how easygoing he was and also how much over the course of talking with him, it came out that in some ways he's just like us. Like on some level, he's just a fan who loves these guys and loves the music that they make. But I, I greatly enjoyed our conversation with Jamie. He was so generous with his time and uh, just obviously charming as he is in every interview, but um, full of anecdotes that I've never heard before. A couple that I have and others have, but uh, told in a new way. And uh, I'm so excited for everyone to be able to hear this. You know, John, he also did like my favorite thing that any guest can do. What's that? He started the interview by saying something nice about us. He did. He was very complimentary. <laughs> So let's get to that compliment, as well as the rest of our conversation <laughs> with Jamie Lincoln Kipman. Enjoy. I like people, they're the ones who can't stand. They're the ones who can't stand. So yeah, I got to tell you before we start that um, I was pretty dubious about um, doing this. And I, I know the Johns are pretty um, gun shy about podcasts in general but i listened to several episodes and i just thought wow those guys know more about the might be giants than i do and um are the things they have to say are are surprisingly deeply insightful and uh, often so i was like well yeah that 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 is a worthy enterprise thank you so much uh, you know there's so many people already doing good work out there trying to decode the music of They Might Be Giants. So all we're hoping is that we're bringing something new to the conversation. But uh, coming from you, that is that is such a compliment. Yeah, that's a huge compliment. Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, your, some of your decoding is uh, a lot more sophisticated than my own. And, and um, I have endeavored to decode things, and I'm, I'm pretty certain I've gotten them completely wrong and missed, um, you know, um, Homeric references and things like that that, uh, that um, some professor somewhere would be mad about. But, um, but yeah, no, uh, very good. A-plus, gentlemen. At least that's what I say now. Let's let's talk in an hour. Right. You'll, you'll see how much of it's just clever editing uh, when, when I'm done. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't blame you if after all these years, the, the songs and the albums have started to blur together. But I would love to know if just off the top of your head, there are any favorite songs or albums um, that, that spring to mind, like maybe a Flansburg Anna Linnell. Two uh, uh, Flansburg songs that that really really blew my mind. That I think 
really speak to um, just his growth as a songwriter. And they're also really succinct in the best They Might Be Giant style. Um, Memo to Human Resources and Careful What You Pack. Yeah. I love those songs. Beautiful. So many of them are just like great. I don't even, uh, calling them out is just, you know, tends to minimize how great they are uh, by not mentioning all these other songs. Linnell is like, you know, he is the genius is genius. Um, and um, I love his voice. I love his harmonies and his melodies. And, you know, I mean, just like, oh, God, there's a trillion songs that I love. Um, then Lita Crane was just, you know, I mean, I, I it practically brought me to tears the first time I, I heard it. Mm-hmm. And it's still, it still is such a powerful song. My parents didn't even get divorced, um, but uh, really like... The album that I think struck me the hardest in its day was Lincoln. I love Mr. Me. I love I've Got a Match, uh, Stand on Your Own Head. I mean, just, I don't even know how they do it, um, honestly. I'm, I'm embarrassed, too. It's just like, a, it's, it's a wealth of riches. There's never been an album where I'm like, you know, well, that that was kind of bad. The Spine was great. Uh, I mean, you know, um, Join Us was great. So the, the, in the modern era, a lot of them. I love so much stuff from Factory Showroom. All those things, you know, were colored for me in the time by the fact that I was part of the music business and in the music business was really not paying attention to them. So, you know, it drives me nuts when I, you know, uh, I... I hear people go like yeah oh man i love they might be giants what but did they ever do anything after flood and you're like oh. <laughs> uh you know 17 albums i don't know you think that i want to be understood i've got a match your embrace and my collapse even when we get along i've got a match your embrace and my I love the idea of the sophomore album kind of because it a band is back on their heels often when they're making it. But it is true that if you want to have a great sophomore album, just write two albums or more worth of stuff before you make your first album. And then the second album is at least consistent, you know? And, um, and I think, but I think Lincoln is just one of the best examples I can think of in my life of buying music of something fulfilling the promise of the, the other thing. Like I, yeah. I got the pink album a little late in its, its release. So I got Lincoln pretty soon after I had the pink album and yeah. I had just, de- I had just decided this was the greatest band ever. And then being flipping through the stacks and seeing something that they had something new at all was almost unthinkable to me. It's like, well, how did this band that made this insane album right. that I don't even know how it exists, they made another one? Oh my God. You know, and then taking it home and listening to it and being like, 
but that was when it cinched the deal for me of just like okay yes this is my favorite thing <laughs> yeah no it's a, it's a good uh, it's a good indicator there's not a lot of bands that just keep pleasing we worked for some time with the band Yolo Tango and um they um were i think one of the few bands that i know of that sort of kept growing um you know deep into their career ask me something else cuz uh, i think i'm i'm pretty boring on the subject of what's my favorite songs because i'm just <laughs> i'm just i'm just a fan who's like yeah i like that one that one's really great too that's even greater than great i'll, I'll ask since since we were just talking about lincoln and you shouted out i've got a match would you happen to know why that song which was i guess very popular at shows in the late 80s just kind of um, left the live show around that time also they've played i think the entire rest of the Lincoln album since then, including its shows highlighting it. Well, you know more than I do. I, I would just say there's too many songs, but um, I always loved it. I don't know. It was a standard um, in the early days, but, you know, I, I, it's, a good, uh, it's a good question. I'll have to ask the Johns because um, I miss it. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's any um, deeper reason than that that I'm aware of. Well, whatever their reasons are for not playing, I've got a match. It's like they've decided not to play it, you know? And that's just making me think of something about this band that almost is part of their mystique, which is that between the two of them, they're this very decisive unit. Sure. That um, you feel like a lot of these creative decisions that that might be hard to explain almost are, are totally understood within the band. And, and obviously they have a long relationship that is central to the project. But um, as someone who spent my teen years reading liner notes and fan club mailings, uh, the name Jamie Lincoln Kipman also was huge. You know, how important is it to be a, a big fan if you're going to be a manager uh, of somebody? And also what's it like trying to manage such focused and driven artists? I often wondered to myself being you know a music fan as as a kid and and uh thereafter um would i have been a they might be giants fan if i didn't actually know them the short answer to my question is is that i think i i would have i mean they might be giants are in my you know i mean uh, they're in my pantheon of all-time great bands um and uh if i was to say you know like you know, if you were to ask me, are they in the you know top five greatest bands of all time? I would say definitely yes. Even though, you know, there's a lot of bands that I would also say. I guess my top five is bigger than five, but um, um, yeah. But um, <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, their relationship was uh, is central to who they are, and that they're sort of the way they work together was a very efficient and powerful fighting unit. I, I don't want to sound militaristic because I'm not, but uh, I've often referred to it as the Rock Wars. It, it really is uh, that. Uh, Bo Orloff, who uh, is a dear old friend of mine and who I know you spoke to, uh, used to talk about the Giants as being, you know, kind of... Well, we used to manage this band, The Ordinaires, and there were, you know, eight or nine of them, and... and uh, he, he always said the difference between the Ordinaires and They Might Be Giants was that the, They Might Be Giants were kind of, there was two of them, they were kind of like the Republicans and the Democrats in the House or Senate, and they, they basically agreed on most stuff. Mm -hmm. That was true, you know, 25 years ago, and it's not today. But they, they basically were, you know, uh, you know, kind of two sides of the same moon. And uh, whereas the Ordinaires were more like Italy and fractious, and there were, you know, eight, different strong positions that you know had temporary alliances and went away john and john always um 
you know, I mean, they always pretty much worked as a unit, which is not to say that they didn't have disagreements or things, but most of them they didn't air, even in a limited public fashion. So, you know, it was it was not always clear to me who was when they were agreeing or disagreeing. But they um and and you know, they certainly we're not above, you know, uh, one of John Flansburg might say, you know, John, we really wouldn't like that. And then, you know, you might happen to be speaking to John Linnell six months later and he'd go like, what a great idea. And you go, oh, really? <laughs> but in general, um, you know, they, they generally saw eye to eye and, and the things that you referred to about the, you know, it, the uniqueness of their project and it really being uh their they wanted to control their message and you know image and things like that you know sort of in, in the in the lead materialistic way but just really in terms of like what they were comfortable with was you know very powerful and and jealously guarded and um you know i i quickly understood that you know it was it was really up to them and that they were the types of talent who were not looking to be molded or shaped or formed, um, and that they their vision was, you know, was what we were going with. And, you know, it worked for me, um, and it, it worked for them, and that was going to be the most important thing. And I think in later years of my career working with bands that were less certain of who they were, where they fit into the world, where they wanted to fit into the world, what, what would be uh, appealing to the people they wanted to be their fans, they they really wanted more direction. And I guess I was surprised and a little uncomfortable with that because I, I was I appreciated that fact about the Johns that they were so clear on on where they stood. Now that, that doesn't mean that, you know, we never had a disagreement or that others didn't or that they didn't take uh, advice on board, you know, about Th- you know, individual songs or, you know, sounds or things like that. But uh, ultimately, you know, it's it's their it's their ship to steer. And, uh, you know, they've done a great job. I think the proof is in the longevity and success and and regard for the band. When we got to a major label and, and you know, just the general atmosphere of the record industry was so much about these, you know, these concrete measures of success and, you know, enormous measures of success, you know. I mean, these are years when there were people who would sell, you know, um, 16 million albums and, um, and you know, and then their next album would sell, you know, seven and everybody would say they're over, you know. Um, and that was not the league that, that we were in, but um, we had a lot of um, serendipitous things happen the jo- and the Johns did. None of which would have happened at the risk of sounding like a, a, a you know, like um, at a testimonial dinner for them. <laughs> None of them would have happened without their innate talent, their, you know, their sense of melody and harmony and um, their lyricism and, you know, stick-to-itiveness, they, incredible hard work and an ability to take, you know, punches, which the industry doled out, um, you know, routinely. I mean, we, they, we were insulted so many times. I've often said about um, John Flansburg in particular, he was at his best when things looked the darkest, whereas, uh, uh, you know, when things looked the brightest, it, it kind of made him nervous. When it, they looked the brightest in conventional terms. There's this interview clip of Flansburg. I think it was posted on YouTube by a guy named Avi Forstein. Um, and and it's just in the 
part before the interview gets going and the the guy is is kind of revving up and he's getting ready to fawn over Flansburg and you can tell how uncomfortable Flansburg is with being fawned over. I've been a fan. Don't say it, man. Don't don't say don't it. Don't start it that way. Don't start it that way. Oh, is it cuz no. you guys have been doing this for We for, we do better with so hostility. Many... We do better with a negative and work environment. Oh, okay. Why are you we still a, on the road? Right, Why a, do you still keep touring? Come hostile, on, man. We need a hostile work environment. Come on. Go back to writing your kids songs for Disney. <laughs> Thank you, Avi. Um, <laughs> there is something almost like austere about that approach that I mean, the you can't talk about them without at some point talking about how hardworking they are and like yeah. the, the, you know, the, the hitting the road constantly making all these songs, making all these albums. It's like, they are so clearly into the process of doing it. And also somehow very realistic about like, the, what are your chances as a band to survive if you don't somehow keep moving and keep, keep making stuff. I don't think it's insignificant. I mean, geographical, the meaning of geographical, Boundaries and uh, you know place of people's birth and and rearing it seems to mean less in American society, but um, they are classical New Englanders, I think, in some way, um, and they have they do have that work ethic, and they're very austere to use another word that you use just in their in their personal selves. Not that they don't enjoy a good time and not like nice things, but they're, you know, that's not what animates them and they're not showy people while, you know, I mean, they're, they are up on stage, um, showing off, but they're not, they're not show offs. Um, they have a inner resolve and strength that is, is profound. And it, it's something I've always really admired. And the older I get, you know, the more you realize that in life, the people who succeed are the ones who, you know, get up and dust themselves off when they get knocked down and who deal with disappointment and, and don't, you know, they don't get really paranoid about it and think like that there's some, you know, unified campaign against them. I mean, you could say that the conventional music industry was a unified campaign against they might be giants, but it wasn't really <laughs> unified. It was just it, it was what it was. And what it was was, you know, horrible and uh, depressing and, uh, you know, a meat grinder. But, um, you know, they they intersected with it. They, you know, cohabitated with it as best they could. I just think it's such an interesting thing because when you talk about the kind of insults that you've heard, I really did want to ask you about that idea of like selling them to the suits, so to speak, over the years. Like, I would imagine that like, because getting this, like, this is that band where everyone talks about you hear it and you get it. That means there are people that hear it and just don't get it. Plenty of those. So I, I'm very curious about that. Some of the some of the things you must have encountered. Any stories you might remember? Uh, you know, how many weeks do you have? Um, <laughs> well, I, I remember playing um, "They'll Need a Crane" for a very nice lady before it had come out uh, at, a, at at some West Coast label. She was like, "Oh my God, that's so funny." And I was like, well, actually, it's not really funny. I th think it's about a divorce, and it's kind of mm -hmm. sad. And uh, she was like, that's it, funny but sad. I love these guys. Um, <laughs> or um, another time where there was uh, e the label EMI wanted to sign them, be Giants, and there was a guy there named Rob Gordon who was started out as an intern who had worked his way up to, you know, A&R assistant, was now sort of an, a full-fledged A&R guy, but he had been trying to get them to sign three bands. Uh, they're funny to remember. One was Def Leppard, one was the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and one was They Might Be Giants, and he couldn't get them to do it. 
Um, and uh, he was writing, you know, 75-page memorandums, you know, um, like that. But one day, somehow, the then president of EMI agreed to have a meeting with the Giants, and Flansburg couldn't come. And um, John Linnell and I went with the A&R guy, and the... Um, the president of EMI is sitting there in, in his big chair with his ponytail. Uh, and he goes like, you know, I have checked out all your videos. You know, they must be giants. Don't let's stop, you know, like magic. Your videos are so inspired. And he points to me and he goes, and you, my friend, are a motherfucker guitarist. <laughs> and I go, well, actually, I'm the manager of the band. The guitarist couldn't make it. And he was like, I knew that. Um, so... Um, you know, there was a lot of insincerity and it was, you know, it was funny. And there were a lot of, I remember one publishing guy who goes, oh, if only it sounded like the first record. I love the first record. It, this is this is completely different. I, it's just no good. And I was like, okay, well, I guess you won't be giving us a publishing deal then. I guess I can understand why this music would just fly right past some people. But um, for me, it was sort of like I fell in love, you know, the second it crossed my path. When did you first hear them? The, the first time I saw them was in 1983, I think, uh, and Bill Krause. I was actually in law school, and um, pretty sure it was 83, um, but, um, and, and had a summer internship uh, working for the New York Attorney General, and um, they were playing some dive bar in Hell's Kitchen, and Bill invited me, and if you took away the guest list, there's negative three people there. But they were, <laughs> they were absolutely, like, blew my mind um, great. I mean, they had their... You know, their crudest um, reel-to-reel backing tape set up and the sound was poor. Um, but their uh, songwriting and their, and their just their voices, um, which, you know, were not necessarily conventionally lovely, um, but the way they harmonized together absolutely blew my mind. And, and um, you'll probably understand this as fans, but I was reminded of the Everly Brothers, who I yes. loved, you know, as a as a high schooler, even though it was super uncool. I was I liked a bunch of bands, in addition to being like a rabid um, Kinks fan and Who fan and, you know, Anglophile. I was, I, I loved the Everly Brothers. I loved Roy Orbison. I loved... Um, the Four Seasons and the Bee Gees, and they were like, which was like, you know, they were all the kids of death in any social setting um, at that point. But um, so th that that really struck me, and I, I just became a fan that first day, and I kept wanting to go see them. Um, and um, anyway, I I mean to to tell my story in a in a nutshell, I um, kind of became friends with them. I mean, and in the back of my mind had this idea that one day I would you know, work with them professionally. Um, I should probably back up to say that um, when I was in high school, I went to a public high school in Leonia, New Jersey, but it was that we had an alternative high school, which was a, uh, you know, kind of like going to college, only, you know, you're 15 years old. And um, a lot of the classes in our town were taught by um, community volunteers. And as it turned out, my next door neighbor, uh, was a guy named Tom Werman, who was a record producer and had been an A&R person. Uh, I think his big early signing was um, Rupert Holmes, uh, but this was his pre-Pina Colada day, so I forgave him for that. <laughs> I myself can only say it's living dead 
ride into the office with a song in my head that goes la da 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 and you know it grows he went on to produce he became basically mr hair metal of the 80s uh, and he produced um Ted Nugent, Poison, Metall uh, Motley Crue, not Metallica, um, L.A. Guns, um, oh, God, a um, bunch of other metal bands. Uh, he sold, you know, I think he sold hundreds of millions of albums. And in any case, he taught a class in the music business. And um, at the end of it, he had said to me that, you know, there were 18 kids in this class, but only... Two of them have any business to think about being in the music business, and you're one of them. And I was like, wow, mm. you know. So that sort of stuck in the back of my mind. And even though I had worked in newspapers and gone to law school um, and uh, so forth, I had it in my mind while I, you know, while I was in law school that maybe I would work with They Might Be Giants somewhat. So it was really, um, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, to get to point B, I tell young people, you know, you you know, it, it helps to have an idea of what you'd like point B to be. So um, I just sort of hung around and became a kind of, um, you know, relatively media savvy and energetic super fan, um, you know, was just friends with them. You know, we amused each other. They were smart. They were people you would love to have to a dinner party, you know, because they were you know, fully conversant on pretty much anything that anybody who is, uh, you know, reasonably educated would uh, know about or want to talk about um, and um, and funny. Um, so in any case, we became friendly. And this is the Jamie Kipman, They Might Be Giants creation story. <laughs> they, um, I basically wound up in this place where I was going to all their shows in New York and they were almost all in New York. Uh, and then I would invite people because I knew people at newspapers and my, my dad had been a newspaperman. He was a TV critic uh, in New York. And so I, I was able, I had some connections through that and he knew some people in the entertainment business. And so I was just always inviting people to their shows and trying to spread the word. Um, and, you know, that was, that was fine. Um, I had jobs. I, I clerked for a judge uh, out of law school, which presented more jobs to me because it was, you know, way above any station I had imagined for myself. And I hadn't really thought about becoming a, a practicing lawyer that much. I really had this unusual view that going to law school was like, in America, was like learning a martial art and that it would be useful in whatever I did. I, my parents were encouraged that view. My father in particular, who had a few friends who had been to law school and never practice law. And uh, that seemed to be a respectable thing to do to them. Whereas, you know, other people that I went to law school with were shocked, horrified, jealous, amazed that you could go to law school and not go straight to work for some crappy law firm and become bored and alcoholic and, you know, secretary pinching, um, you know, within the first two years. In any case, simultaneously, I had been developing this career as a, uh, you know, this this fledgling career as an automotive uh, writer. Um, I had sold some pieces while I was in law school to uh, a magazine called Auto Week and then this new magazine called Automobile Magazine. And in the summer of 1986, um, I was in... 
I was able to persuade Automobile Magazine as my clerkship was winding down that I should go to every baseball park in America in a Corvette Roadster, which was a, just a brand new thing then for that new model line of Corvettes. I won't bore you with the details, uh, but um, while I was on that trip, um, I had the what was early versions of the what became their first demo tape. And um, I was, you know, driving through the Midwest when I, I listened to um, She's an Angel, which was pretty close to the finished version. Why, why did they send her over anyone else? How should I react? I was actually with Bo Orloff and I was, you know, we were both like completely blown away. I mean, just thinking about like, that, you know, this is as good as the Toppy Heads, which was a reference point to us, or it sounds like, you know, this could be, a, uh, it's like, this is great. And then, you know, everything was great. And uh, as you listen closely, but that that sort of was like more hi-fi and it, it sort of demonstrated that their their recording skills had gone to a higher level. So I that, that it really started to dawn on me because they hadn't put out really any records at that point that um, that that would be a thing. So, um, and that, that they were going to have a career and that maybe I needed to tune back in. So in any case, I had accepted a job working at the New Jersey Attorney General's office, uh, it being in charge of the Charitable Trust Division. But then I was in Salt Lake and um, on my way headed to Anaheim when I realized that if actually if I was going to start this job, which I had put out of my mind, I had to turn around and drive 72 hours straight back to Trenton, New Jersey, um, a city I liked. But um, and, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a good job and would have paid more than I'd ever made. But it didn't feel right. So it was in the days before cell phones. And I pulled over to the side of the road and uh, spoke in, in one of those um, coin phones where you could talk from your car. And I pumped a bunch of dimes and nickels and quarters into it and called them. And I was like, I, you know, I can't make it there on Monday. And they're like, uh, Tuesday? And I was like, I no. And they were like, Wednesday? And I was like, you know what? I, I can't take this job. I'm really sorry. I got to go. So I headed uh, down to see the Red Sox play the California Angels in Anaheim. Um, I didn't have a job. I went home and covered the um, World Series between the Mets and the Red Sox, giving it a, a Boston theme for In These Times magazine, and was basically a, you know, a underemployed auto journalist and somebody who was friends with They Might Be Giants, <laughs> which, you know, meant nothing economically. Fast forward maybe, you know, four months or three months, and I had been going to all their shows. I was friendly with a guy named Art DeLugoff, who owned the nightclub, The Village Gate. My parents actually knew him from New York in the 1950s, and I had gone to uh, high school with his kids, who I'd actually met as a child, but um, they moved to my town from the city, and um, I, it, was, it was a great club. I mean, it had been a super successful jazz club, and I saw Dizzy Gillespie and uh, Charles Mingus and, you know, Dick Gregory and other comedians there as, as a young person, and uh, he was frank. Uh, he said, look, you know, kid, jazz is dying, you know, and my room is empty too much. I mean, I had gone to see the Dirty Dozen Brass Band there and there were 12 people. And um, so he was like, you know, I was like, well, you know, I know this band. And he was like, well, hey, listen, you know, if you can fill this room up, 
give me 500 bucks in the bar and it's yours, you know, and it's a 450 seat room. And it, to that point, the Giants had gotten to the stage where they could reliably sell out any of the East Village clubs, which then were about 100 people capacity. And, um, you know, I was like, hey, let's let's do a show in the West Village, you know, which was like, it, it wasn't exactly like saying, hey, let's go to, you know, let's go to, you know, Hamburg and do a gig, but it was, or let's go to, let's go to, you know, the moon. Uh, but it was, it was, you know, it seemed like a stretch, uh, not least because the room was so big, but we were like, well, you know, if we could just sell a couple hundred tickets, you know, we'd certainly make money. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we were setting out to sell, theoretically to sell 900 tickets through no fault of my own. Um, uh, a publicist who liked They Might Be Giants and I think wanted to manage them said, um, managed to place a story in the New York Times about Dial a Song and They Might Be Giants, which hit like two days before this gig. And so suddenly it turned out that we ended up selling 700 plus tickets. And at the end of the night, oh, well, you know, I should preface it by saying that the, the Johns had said, you know, you, you can, we don't want to partner on this, which is what I had proposed. But you and Bill Krause can, um, but we get 150 bucks a show and that's your deal. And, you know, take it or leave it. And we were like, OK, we're going to do we're going to take a chance. We're going to, you know, risk three hundred dollars or something like that. Anyway, at the end of the night, we're Bill and I and are in the dressing room with the Johns. And we have like, you know, six thousand dollars in cash, um, which is more money than any of us have ever seen in our lives. And, you know, it's just like, you know in piles and uh, in unsorted piles. And um, I was like, here, you guys got to take some of this money. And they were like, no, no, you know, no. We we made a deal. And I was like, wow. And then they said, but if you want to be our manager, you know, that would be good. And I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> I'll be your manager. And um, so it was sort of like, that was the first step of my They Might Be Giants dream coming true. Really, the job was to get them to be able to quit their day jobs, which seemed really important to me. And something that I had sort of learned watching writers and people that my family knew that, you know, ultimately there was this moment of truth where if, if you were really going to do it, you really had to do it. And you can't, you, it's, it wasn't for dilettantes and hobbyists. Um, and, um, you know, they b both were living as close to the bone. It was was humanly possible. I mean, they were, Flansburg was uh, um, probably the first resident of um, Williamsburg who had a guitar, and um, which nowadays is funny. But, um, and Linnell was living in, um, in Hell's Kitchen. Um, so they, and you know, they, he was a bike messenger and Flansburg was like, you know, counting people in Grand Central Station for Metro North. They, you know, they had in doing some, art directing type stuff, but they were both, both really junior positions. And so we started to work on ways that they could quit their jobs. And it, they, it all came very fast. And this is all sort of building up to my larger point that things really went great for a long time. Not that there weren't disappointments and disasters, many of the technical variety when the tape machine would go down on the road or the crappy car that we were using to tour in broke. Um, but um, you know, it basically, it was it was all good. Everything right is wrong again, just like in the long, long trailer. All the dishes got broken, the car kept driving, and nobody would stop to ever. So obviously, you were hearing 
nearly finished versions of the album tracks as you were coming on board as their manager. When did uh, uh, Bar None Records enter the picture? They had actually um, gotten their deal with Bar None before, um, you know, several months before I started managing them. So the record was out. The first record was just out. Um, and um, But I had sort of been brought around as, you know, before I was managing them and before I was even, had even passed the bar, uh, which I did probably, uh, if the album came out in October of 86, I probably passed, got my bar exam. No, actually, I had passed the bar. Check that. But I was brought around as basically like, you know, here, you, you're the lawyer and just smoke these people out. And in general, almost everybody who was approaching them was some kind of joker, or you know, like just trying to jump on board. And none of it was really persuasive. And I, in those early days, I, if somebody was really, you know, great, I would have said this person is really great but they they were mostly you know not up to the task at hand and and I don't think really understood the jobs that that so in any case um you know I knew the bar none people and they were nice guys and uh you know I I gave it my blessing and they did the deal essentially on a on a napkin and then when I came in I was able to you know paper up some of the stuff that was open but they were the bar none guys were really agreeable and were super you know, not of the like, wait, you've just signed your life away to us type of thing. They were really not that way. And then after, um, nobody really knew what the first single on their record was, but, you know, it was, everything was happening slowly enough that we could sort of do like what amounted to market research. And there was such a thing as college radio that was tracked. So, we could see that while we, we had thought that Puppet Head might be the first single or maybe it was the strongest song um, or Hotel Detective that Don't Let's Start was um, very much, you know, the one that people were playing. I mean, that song changed my life. That was an MTV played in the afternoon thing, at, you know, out of the blue, uh, Don't Let's Start. And it was like I heard it once and I I never saw it a video again for months. But when I bought the tape and I finally found it and played it, I, I was shocked at how much I remembered it, you know, right. that I had been for months humming it and how much it stuck in my mind on just one listen. Right. Like, to me, that's one of the best pop songs anyone's ever made. Oh, very much so. And it was, um, it was a hit, it's a hit song, you know, it really just is a hit song. Um, at one point, um, when it was being released as a single, there was the sense that um, it needed, you know, a little more bottom end to make it sound a little heavier than it had been, you know, because, you know, I mean, the recording stuff was so crude and, and synthetic that, um, you know, that was that was something that that troubled me more than the Johns and, and it probably didn't matter, you know, I mean, <laughs> I look back at it, but you know, that, that was, that was as much meddling as I could do, but they did a remix of it and, you know, beefed up the, the Toms or something like that. So it, it comes out and, I mean, and this was, this is a great example of them turning adversity into, into success. And I think we were on tour. I managed to persuade Automobile Magazine to send us on tour, which led to that story at Roadies Ourselves. Um, and um, 
give us a car and basically have Rupert Murdoch pay for the gas. And we were in a, in a Chrysler minivan and we drove all over, you know, thousands of miles. I think this would have been what amounted to the second They Might Be Giants tour. And we put thousands and thousands of miles on it and went everywhere. And um, one of the famous gigs that's recounted in that story was when we went to Pittsburgh and we they played they played the electric banana and um uh it was a really dispiriting crowd it was i don't remember if the weather was bad or it just was a bad night or just we didn't have that many fans yet in pittsburgh but there were 27 pit tickets sold and i was kind of like oh, let's go home let's kill ourselves and they were like no let's go and they went on and put out the most energetic show ever and it turned out that two of the people who were there were from the radio station, I can't remember uh, what it was called now, believe it or not, but uh, they added Don't Let's Start the Next Day, and that was their first commercial radio station ad. And then it started to cascade, and it, and it, it, was, a, it was a bona fide, um, you know, modern rock hit. I remember not long after that, we flew to L.A. to do their first gig there at the Club Lingerie, because um, we had never been that far west, and... Um, we had heard that um, K-Rock was interested in playing the band. In fact, um, we got a call from, I got a call from a promo guy in L.A. who said, uh, you know, I think uh, Rick Carroll, who's the program director of K-Rock, it really likes this, you know, Don't Let's don't let Stop song or something like that. And I was like, uh, oh, that's great. And he was like, yeah, I, th- I think he could be persuaded to play it. I was like, well, persuade away, you know, and he's like, well, uh, you don't understand, um, you know, we're going to have to juice him. And I was like, juice him? Well, go go right ahead, you know, juice away. Let's let's go, you know, let's get this party started. And he was like, no, no, you have to juice him. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. And he was like, well, you know, I know he likes uh, deep freezers and um, color TV sets and <laughs> things like that that you could buy. And I was like, Dude, you got the wrong guy. I have no money, but uh, but um, you could buy him a TV set or a refrigerator. That's fine with me. Um, and he's like, no, no. I struck a bargain with my radio DJ. I said I'd like this song to be number one. He said I'd really, really like to help you, my son. And then I knew that I would have him to thank because he asked me how much I had in the bank. He said to think long-term investment and then all the others have been given themselves. Barnon was having trouble printing records fast enough at that point because they couldn't get credit from the distributors uh, or the manufacturers because they had never really put out a record before. They'd put out maybe one record before they might be giants. In any event, th- they added the song and it was an instant hit. We would have sold, you know, 30,000 copies, but we could only make you know, 1,500 records at a time. And so, you know, 500 maybe would go to L.A. They were darlings of MTV, and, you know, we were starting to sell more tickets everywhere we went. You know, on that first tour, there were, I mean, it was like, I don't know, it was like free beer night or something like that. At, in Kansas City, there were 700 people, and, you know, there was, uh, I think we sold out the Kennel Club in San Francisco, and there was, you know, 500 people in Chicago. And so, you know, we really started to feel like, you know, this is real. And the money wasn't, you know, it was enough for them to live on, on a, you know, on the... You know, certainly on the you know economical basis which they had 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 lived on and and then suddenly there started to be 
major label interest. Meanwhile, the album Lincoln is getting finished. Um, and while they, they, they do say, and it's true, that you have your whole life to write your first album and you got, you know, 20 minutes to write your second album, um, the Johns had been so prolific that their second album was well underway by the time, you know, it was time to record it. And, you know, there were some absolute gems that were dropped at the last minute. I'll always remember They'll Need a Crane as being just like, you know, what? You had that and we didn't hear it yet? Um, that's such a great album. I mean, the, the first album was so great. I, I thought it was, you know, it was like a great progression. And um, some people in the music industry agreed. And we had had enough success that I was able to get meetings really around the world for They Might Be Giants. Um, we went to Europe and was able to license Lincoln and the first album retroactively in, you know, probably eight separate territories because um, Europe, I mean, there was no internet, so you could really physically limit where your records were being sold. And you could get a, a, a separate advance in each country. Um, and meanwhile, in the States, we had realized that while we loved um, Glenn Morrow and Tom Prendergast from Bar None, that they did not have the deep enough pockets to actually f fill the chain. And, and um uh, they they did some great things. There was a, a big distributor called Gem that went bankrupt, owing them like twenty thousand dollars, most of which was owed to they might be giants. And you know your your average crappy indie label would have just said, you know, sorry man, I got screwed, you got screwed. Um, and uh, your average you know crappy record contract would provide for that possibility, so they they could screw you under color of law. But they actually somehow came up with the money to pay us the money that we were owed, which was was really crucial at that moment in time. And you know, I'll admire those guys forever for that. In the meantime, we were able to do a deal with uh, Restless, which was part of Enigma, which was a very big indie at that point, um, to do the distribution and manufacturing and bring their muscle to bear. And, and so Lincoln had a much healthier, you know, kind of physical distribution situation, plus some additional promotional help. Now, what happened then was that the single Anna Ang was just being put out as a teaser and there was so much pent up demand that it became an instant hit before we could even get to what we thought was the single, which I think was They'll Need a Crane. But um, it was, you know, by that time, Anna Ang was so big that it, you know, it was almost like an afterthought. And that's when we sort of realized that you don't by right get two and three singles off an album if you're not Michael Jackson. Um, so... Um, that Anang turned out to be a really big hit. And then at that point, there was already a lot of major label interest. Because even if they didn't get it themselves, they could see that, you know, the kids were digging it. And um, we had a lot of adventures then of people, you know, misunderstanding the band. In that period, we got approached again by um, our, uh, our now old friend, Sue Drew, but who had been at Polygram and had tried to sign us there for Lincoln, but basically indicated that she was going to be leaving the company with her best pal there and that we should wait. And we, which we did because, you know, we were pretty far down the road with the bar none release of Lincoln. And then she w wound up at Electra and we signed to Electra on the basis of that. We got a big publishing deal with Warner Chapel, which was helpful. And again, and then Birdhouse and Your Soul was a big hit um, through absolutely no help from the record company. I mean, they were, Sue Drew was great, but the, the larger company was, you know, um, 
rather disinterested. I mean, the president of Elector, then a guy named Bob Krasnow, who was a real interesting character, who um, had met Captain Beefheart when they lived in like adjacent mobile homes in like the 60s when Krasnow was a record salesman who had a trunk of his, uh, the trunk of his car was filled with albums that he'd go around selling, uh, was now the president of Electra and, uh, uh, and, you know, had, I guess, worked on getting the first Beefheart album re- re- released. And he was a pretty tweedy guy musically. I don't think he particularly got They Might Be Giants, but he liked us. He liked the Johns and we'd spend long hours in his office, you know, talking about what wine you should have for the Philip Glass party or things like that or or um, left-wing politics. But he wasn't really, uh, you know, yeah, he was sort of delegated all the radio promotion stuff like that. And we had, a, I had a particularly upsetting conversation with the um, uh, head of promotion then for Electra, who um, I went in, you know, and as was my want, you know, I'd, I'd show up every week at least to try to talk to people there. And, you know, a lot of people were happy to chat. They just weren't happy to spend any money on my band. But this guy, I felt like I had all the ammunition you need. I was like, okay, so Birdhouse of Your Soul is in the top 10 in England. And it's in um, MTV's Buzzbin, which was a big deal then. And he turned to me also with his ponytail and he said, you know, son, that doesn't mean dick to me. And I'm like, oh, gosh. Um, so they didn't really do anything. So we were getting added to radio stations that had never been asked by the record company that had a whole staff of people whose only job was to ask to get records played. But it was, you know, in in the fullness of time, I came to understand that that's because, you know, it was it was selling, but not as well as it should. So disappointments that were revealed to me that year were... Um, I was friendly with the head of sales, um, a, a lovely woman in L.A. who we went out to dinner one night with a bunch of other electric people. We were sitting next to each other. And she said, you know, you guys got screwed this week. And I was like, why? She said, um, well, you know how you were 76 on the Billboard Top 200 with a bullet next to you last week and you're 76 this week without a bullet. And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, you, you actually sold twice as many records this week as you did last week. And I was like, well, how can they, you know, how can they do that? It's, it's a chart. And she was like, exactly. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not fair. You're not a priority. And so they're not, you know, they're not making you go up the chart. They're going to let you go down the chart. Um, so that was, uh, you know, upsetting. Um, but, you know, it didn't really matter because things kept going well. And there were increasingly large numbers of believers, but um, the uh, a consistent concern was, would They Might Be Giants be able to, as a duo, play big rooms? Like, the feeling was, like, it's just not, it can't really be rock, you know? Uh, they, they if, if only they had a band. So um, we went, I remember, to do, like, sort of what was, our biggest show ever in LA at that point, it was going to be at the Wiltern Theater and it was, you know, 2000 people and it was sold out and all the executives were coming. And, you know, John and John's egos like expanded to fit and they totally filled up the room with sound. It was like they went into hyperdrive and people were crying. It was so good. I mean, it was like, 
it was insane. And, you know, I, so, you know, I was like, well, we passed the test. And they were like, man, you know, blah. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, God. You know, they sound so good to me as a duo. I'm not one of those people that thinks that the early primitive recordings are compromised compared to what they can do in the modern era. Uh, as much as I love the band and and I would not take away from what they afford the Johns uh, as far as what they can do, I genuinely adore that sonic palette that they came up with when they were trying to fill the space that would normally be taken up by a band. You know, it was like, well, we're not impersonating a band exactly, but we are creating these these big climactic moments and these production numbers. Um, and uh, that actually reminds me of something I really don't want to leave behind as we move forward through the band's major label experience, which is that uh, the whole Bill Krauss aspect of things. Now, you go way back with Bill, don't you, Jamie? I met Bill Krauss my first day of college, yeah. So he was here pretty much at the beginning of this whole thing, and it seems to me from the outside that his ingenuity was a big part of coming up with the template that like became their methodology for the sound that would gain them all this attention. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it has always seemed strange that he exited the project on the eve of them getting ready to record all these great songs they had in the hopper for Electra, the stuff that would become Flood. Um, it just it, it just seems less like a, a producer parting ways with a project and much more like a member of a band leaving. Yeah, he. I think he left, but I think it was sort of a mutual parting of ways. I love Bill. We're still friends. And I love John and John, and, and we're still friends. He was uh, not enamored of life on the road, and he was also their live sound guy. He's a, he's a brilliant guy, and, and he was, uh, you know, um, a... Um, Super hardworking and super creative, uh, you know, engineer and producer. But I think, you know, like they needed somebody to, you know, sort of show them around. And I think as they as they got their, you know, sea legs in the studio, they 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 didn't need it and they didn't really want to hear it. And you know, the truth is, is that, you know, the Giants were never enthusiastic about particularly about having producers, um, you know, they did. And I think they respect all the people they worked with and what they achieved. And, you know, there's no, you know, there's no gain saying, you know, what Clive Langer brought to Birdhouse and Your Soul, for instance. Or My Man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot that that was Clive. I love that song. But so I, I, I think that, you know, do, you know, this is a truism, but partnerships of two work better than partnerships of three. And the original partnership was John and John, and that's the one that had to survive. Partnerships of three, you know, lead to factionalism. And the faction was always going to be John and John. And that's just the way it has to be. They're very protective of each other. And, uh, you know, Bill was, uh, Bill was not, you know, I don't think he really had the stomach for, you know, the, the, just the intense drivenness about, um, you know, something that was in the end, not, uh, going to be his project. You know, he, he could be overruled easily. And I don't know that he, you know, felt like that's how he wanted to spend the rest of his life. But, you know, I mean, he's, he's remains a fan and, um, I don't doubt that they, you know, really respect his contribution to what they did. Um, but the, you know, the sound definitely, the other thing to, to, 
taken into consideration is is that they started having a band, and that really changed, you know, the the sort of the sound palette and of of the way they thought about doing things. Was that something that as a, as their manager that you were ready for? Like I've heard different accounts of like when that was being talked about and who was more enthusiastic about that. But I mean, did, did that make certain things easier as far as sending the band out? It well, you know, as a practical matter, it made some things easier, but it made things a lot more expensive and uh it it added many dimensions of, you know, of personality management and expectation management. Um to um, you know, to our job and to the John's job, um, but you know it's great to have really great um, players with you, and you know, and who oftentimes have great ideas and are fun guys to hang out with on the road. So I think it, it made John and John's job easier. They, you know, there's some question in my mind whether they'd still be alive if they were just two guys. The the need to be on all the time. You know, now John or John can, you know, they can go get a drink of water. They can, you know, take a breather uh, from jumping around while somebody's playing their solo or there's another part of the song. In those days, not only did they have to fill all the airspace, but if something broke, you know, like the tape recorder went down or the DAT machine that followed it or the cassette tape that preceded it, you know, the whole show stopped and somebody had to fill the air. So I, I think it was a lot more stressful. And um, ultimately, it didn't, you know, it didn't jibe with the touring scene that much in that sound men weren't used to any of this stuff. You couldn't fake it when the tape machine went down. Of course, you couldn't jam, and people were critical of that. I don't think that bothered them that much, and I don't. I think it's it, it is a minority view that like oh, the Johns when when they lost the tape machine, you know, I like them less. There, I've heard people say that. Um, I don't, you know, uh, overall, I don't agree with that. There was something charming about them as a duo, and there is something charming they still do in their sets, duo sets, about just the two of their voices together, and and that's that. Those harmonies you were referring to, I mean, I, I do think that doubles, uh, that's worth underlining, too, that so much of that is a big part of what they do. And I think that's why sometimes the stripped down model works is precisely because of those folky harmonies and that almost like busking effect. Mm -hmm. There is that side of them that you get in the duo shows. But I do think that, I think it's almost like a mythical thing that, that there were people that were less happy seeing them live with a band. I mean, I remember I got to see them once as a duo and then after that, all band shows. And I, I, I'm glad I got to see a duo show, but I also, I, I don't think when I was in the crowd, you didn't have a sense that anybody was missing the tape machine when right. these great players came out on stage. To, to the contrary. I mean, people really get into, you know, the band doing band things. And, and the band doesn't seem like they've really looked back from that moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's 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 fascinating. And I, I know from a, from a, you know, marketing standpoint, you could, certainly sell a John and John with their tape machine tour but uh I don't I don't see that in the offing sorry to disappoint the few people who care about that but uh you know they like being a band I mean they, you know that at the end of the day what's great about uh they might be giants is they love they love to play live they love making music and you know their motives are as pure as they could be and um that's really all they want to do. So, I mean, they've been a lot of entreaties from Hollywood and other places of people who want them to do different things or to take it to the next, the so-called next level. But that's not really, you know, I mean, they're they're kind of happy doing what they're, you know, what they do. So no duo tour, but will we get a box set of Dial-A-Song demos at any point? <laughs> I, can, I can't say. <laughs> Seems like that'll never happen. 
They did do a, a wonderful show. You may have been there, Jamie, in 2015 in Brooklyn, where it was just John and John for maybe the first 40 minutes, and, and they actually used a reel-to-reel and recorded new backing tracks. Yeah, that sort of was to scratch that itch, address that question, and it was charming and, and wonderful. If it wasn't for disappointment, I wouldn't have any appointments. I'll let you jump But, you know, I mean, I've seen, you know, 450 They Might Be Giant shows or something like that. And I, I got to say, I, I love them all. You know, I can't, uh, I'm, I'm really biased, so I, I can't say, you know, there there are things that are higher highs sometimes. But, but basically, you know, it's always good. I never see people walking right grumbling the way I have for some other bands. <laughs> I didn't expect to find a salesman drinking coffee this late in the morning. How long you been here, Joe? Oh, I don't know. I guess 30, 45 minutes maybe. Why'd you ask? Oh, you must be making a lot of sales. Piling up a good income. Oh, I, I, I'm doing alright. I, I could do better, but oh, I get it all. Back on that old Not back on it, Joe. Still on it. So the band had a successful major label debut that was getting good reviews, and and it actually managed to spawn a couple of big songs. Birdhouse in Your Soul and Istanbul and Constantinople were both singles that didn't sound like anything else around, and you know instantly were recognizable as this band. So as a fan, it was like, wow, this they might be giants are really ready to take over the world. And and while I continued to enjoy their albums and felt like they grew creatively, commercially, you look back now and you realize, oh, wait, Flood was the peak of their major label experience. It almost seems like Elektra didn't know what to do with them after that. The next album, Apollo 18, came out, which had done, uh, you know, it did pretty well right, right out of the box. Uh, but um, it became evident to us this is in 1992, that um, they were not working it. And in fact, we were being lied to about what was happening. Um, we had a big enough fan base that there was a new form of, you know, what amounted to payola in the music industry, not buying people deep freezes, but delivering bands for record stations, festivals. And there was, you know, it, there was a spate of festivals that, you know, I, I don't, I don't even know if it still happens the same way, but uh, a bunch of bands would get delivered by the record companies free of charge to a radio station, which would have, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 people out to see them and it would cost them nothing and they could, at the very least, they could generate a lot of goodwill, but they also, I think they would sell tickets and they would sell they'd get some part of the concession and things like that. So it was a money-making opportunity for them. So we discovered uh, through radio station programmers, we'd say, like, what did you think of our new single? And they'd go, like, what new single? And I'd go, like, you know, the one we just sent you, you know, that's the reason we're here, because um, you're going to play a record. And uh, they'd be like, nobody sent me your record. And I didn't even know you had a record. But um, no, we... we, we uh, you're here because we added the Levelers record. So it was like, huh. 
And so I confronted the promotions guy who denied it, and he brought in another person uh, who was like, how dare you say that? But it, this happened in six places, and at some point I had, I had persuaded them that they should test market the song The Guitar at Top 40 Radio. And nothing, I'd never heard anything again, but I asked them and they said, yeah, died a fiery death, sorry, man. Two years later, the, um, the electric promo guy for Cleveland, this is in 94, two years after Apollo 18, said, you know, you guys got really screwed. Um, he said, you know that the station that played the guitar, that it was the number one call out song? Call out meaning they'd call people and ask like, what do you, what's, what do you think of this song? What do you think of that song? And which, which, you know, which, it was basically what songs responded to people who had heard them on the radio. So, um, but that was 94 and I guess what, all of this was a long way of getting to 1992, where it seemed like, you know, the record company was already done with us after one record that had done pretty well, which incidentally, the album Flood did about 275,000 copies its first year, which was certainly respectable in our book, but it wasn't gold and it wasn't platinum. And this is, you know, sort of around when Tracy Chapman is selling, you know, 7 million albums. And they were, they were, you know, they were done and they were not going to spend money and they were not going to even tell us the truth about whether we had ready singles or not. And then of course, in that, right around that time, Nirvana broke and the whole format of radio changed. So it was kind of too late anyway, because um, anything that was, was big before, with a few exceptions, was brimmed out. It suddenly seemed like things were, were pretty grim and that, you know, our, our record deal was, we weren't in danger of getting dropped, but it was, it was gonna be grim. And, you know, those in those days, you know, you really had to sync up with your record company and the release of your record to go on tour. And it was all this kind of ecosystem. So I was really depressed um, and I was buoyed by um, the jobs who were like, yeah, you know, so what, you know, let's keep going. Um, you know, we really had all but been told, like, you know, you know, you can go home now, you know, it's game's over. Um, and they just dug in. But we had all these, in, in, you know, uh, uh, to be fair, we had all these indicia that there, there was something had happened that the label was completely unaware of. Their single-mindedness and their, you know, the the strength of their belief in what they were doing and their interest in doing what they were doing allowed them to soldier on for what's been another 30 years, really. Yeah, the Johns have definitely proven to be adept at like surviving the shifting landscape of just what the music industry expects from a band. It seems like in the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, these labels overnight decided that these, these acts they had signed, knowing that they might sell hundreds of thousands of records rather than millions, um, they just overnight decided that those bands weren't worth the effort. And furthermore, the idea of like developing a band and nurturing them over a career seemed to go out the window if you weren't already top of the charts. Well, yeah. I mean, part of that was a changing landscape. But um, the uh, I, I think, you know, I, I wish I had my, my calendars in front of me, but I think you can trace a lot of that to um, 
structural changes in the record business, which saw some really big mergers, um, in particular affecting us, was the Time Warner merger. They really changed the game. I mean, I remember uh, Bob Krasnow, the president of Electra, telling me, you know, I mean, and that was a prosperous company. They were selling just tons of records. And him telling me, you know, we made a return on, on investment, which is, of course, the important capitalist metric, 39%. You know, we were made... Uh, 39% a year we were making this profit, basically. And um, my new marching orders, because of this huge debt that's been incurred by merging this company and enriching you know, a handful of executives and their lawyers and investment bankers, um, my new marching orders is to get a 70% ROI, so, you know, practically doubling what they were already making, which was, you know, eye-wateringly large. And um, the way we're going to do that is we're going to release twice as many records with half as much staff. So it, it um, I've often analogized it to a game of baseball. Imagine if there was a game of baseball where singles, doubles, and triples didn't count uh, only home runs, and frankly, those weren't very interesting either. The Grand Slam home runs were better, but everybody was sitting there waiting for the 17-run homer that didn't exist in nature, but um, <laughs> they couldn't make enough money, and they were owned, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, by companies that were increasingly distant from their core business and also run by technocrats. And so it was all a numbers game. And, you know, I mean, when you looked at it that way, I mean, I was fortunate to work with people at other labels who were had similar pressures. Uh, there was a guy at at uh, Polygram named Peter Kupke who was, uh, you know, he was the president of London Records and he was he had good taste and he was a good guy. He had tried to sign the Giants at Atlantic Records. But I knew when I was coming to talk to him about some bands that, uh, you know, based on what they were going to sell and and what his quarterly nut was that he had to bring in in revenue, I deserved, you know, on a strict numbers basis, you know, about 11 seconds of his time maximum. Um, and, you know, if then he talked to you for an hour, you know, he was he was wasting money, you know, I mean, in the in the strict metrics of the business. So uh, they, there was, there, it was unbelievable. It was just carnage. So anyway, wartime was bad, but then the AOL Time Warner merger was infinitely worse. And um, everybody who pretty much who was a music person was either broomed out or so depressed that they were catatonic because they, you know, it was all a numbers game. And for the remaining years where I was really dealing with major labels, you know, I was, I was, you know, sort of had become a bit of a senior statesman. So people would be honest with me about what their pressures were. And I remember one guy at um, Capitol Records telling me, you know, uh, you know what I'm going to do this week? He said, I, I have to predict um, how much money we're going to make in the third quarter, three years from now. And I have no fucking idea, you know, because like, how do you know how who knows what's going to be a hit in three years? And and why should you even tell yourself that it's going to be that? So what so then what becomes appealing are the you know, are the real um, tentpole acts. So at Polygram, I remember uh, vividly when I think it was Zootopia, the U2 album that um, 
super tanked. Um, and um, it was going to be a big tour. And they were planning for it, for, you know, for two years in advance. And everybody was excited. And, you know, it was like all the money was going there. And then it was as if everybody in the days of steamships, everybody had come to the pier to watch, you know, the Queen Elizabeth docking. And while it was there, it just blew up and burned and everybody died. I mean, it was like you couldn't have been sadder and it couldn't have been more horrific spectacle than watching that album go down. And of course, if you were managing an act that wasn't, you know, anywhere near that level of importance to them, you know, it was like every man and woman and child for themselves. So the music industry um, has hurt music in so many ways that, you know, we, one can't even begin to recount it. And it was, it was terrible when I got in, in the, in the, you know, in the eighties and it was terrible when, um, you know, when we left major labels and pretty much I would say, you know, it's been 10 years since I really had much to do with major label eight, nine years. Um, it's almost like it's pointless. Um, if you're trying to break new music, unless it sounds like old music, like specifically like what was a hit yesterday, mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of appetite. And if they can't see their way to millions of streams, you know, instantly, they just, they really, you know, and the honest ones will tell you, you know, we we just don't really have time for that. I'm curious about, um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about what went wrong with major labels in general, not just what they might be giants, but they, uh, they basically became independent in the late '90s and, and started their own record label, Idlewild. Right. Uh, what, what were the uh, what were the challenges there? Well, Idlewild was was started. It was funny. We had done a deal with um, Rounder for a children's record. We were aware from the early '90s, really, in the wake of the um, Tiny Tunes cartoons, which which used uh, Istanbul and Particle Man. and uh, That's how John first saw them, by the way, just so you can, if, I'm sure you've heard that from many people. I, I remember here. I remember hearing that, and I, I remember now that I wanted to correct something that I had, had heard, but um, I think I'm correcting you guys and not somebody else who was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> just to refresh the listener's memory, uh, when Bo Orloff was on this show, he told the story of how the Johns approved the usage of their music for Tiny Tunes believing or under the impression or or maybe having been misled to believe that this was going to be something much closer to the old uh, theatrical Warner Brothers shorts. But then we're disappointed to find out that it was kind of a kid's syndicated show. We did not approve that use. It was a surprise to us. Um, wow. We came back from Europe, I think, or Japan or something, and we found out that it had happened. And so uh, the Johns were not particularly enthusiastic. Those were the days, mind you, where people did not um, readily license songs to anybody who asked, um, especially, um, you know, advertisements and things like that. It was, you know, it was... Um, it was a career ender for some bands. We're friends with a guy who works at our publisher, Warner Chapel, who was in the band, The Long Riders. They were like going to be the next birds in the early 90s. And um, everybody loved them. They were critical darlings. And they allowed one of their songs and their image to be licensed by Miller Genuine Draft Beer. And it was like everybody turned on them overnight, sellouts. How can you do that? You know, blah. <laughs> Made the American way. It's what you do and it's what you say. 
play music because that's what we do best. You know, I remember in the late 80s, Lou Reed and Grace Jones allowed their images to be used in a Honda scooter ad. And they were pilloried also. He's like, how could they do that? Uh, you know, what could be more benign than a Honda scooter? But um, um, so, yeah, so the Johns were, you know, in fairly in the habit of just going, no, you know, no thanks. You know, that doesn't, you know, we don't necessarily, we don't know what it is. We don't know if we like it. So let's just say no and stay ahead of it. But uh, so it happened. But uh, flood sales suddenly were like turbocharged. And um, it was a, a big reason why I think why flood just kept selling because we started d- developing this new younger fan base and, you know, their moms would go and buy them this album. And, uh, and then many of those fans became fans for life. So from that, there was sort of this takeaway that there was a younger audience that we might reach. So, which had a little bit to do with, uh, you know, things that we we talked about around Apollo 18, but nobody really wanted to do anything really like a kid's album or anything like that, which which was brooded about. But then as we were going to leave Electra, it became apparent that, you know, maybe maybe we should take it out and see what happens. Well, I love that what happened was so in line with their usual output, like no is just a good they might be giants album and and i did not have a kid at the time so it was reassuring that i could listen to it and not feel strange that i was listening to good songs they, there were just tonal differences you know maybe something they would do a little differently here or there from from one of their so-called adult albums in fact i think they shared a couple songs on tmbg unlimited that were essentially outtakes from no and and those sort of helped to define okay what is the line between something they would make uh, and maybe put on one of their regular albums but that would not be on on an album for kids yeah <laughs> Another thing about No uh, that I've always wondered about is it seemed like it was finished and then it took them a while to find someone to put it out. Uh, What was going on there? We did a deal with uh, Rounder, which I guess we had gotten to uh, put out state songs and um, for They Might Be Giants children's album. And believe it or not, we turned in No, which everybody thought was fantastic. Um, And... um, they didn't get back to us for like a month and um the um you know they owed us the back end of of a not insubstantial advance and we were like you know well, what's up so finally they they said we want you to get on the phone with this marketing consultant we have it's like oh god a uh, rounder had, which was you know a, a great incredible uh label not really hipstery but um you know, they had uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So they had suddenly they had a lot of money and they, uh, Alison Krauss, I think, was theirs. Um, and uh, so they had a marketing consultants and we get on the phone, I get on the phone with this woman and, and them and she's like, you know, no, it's so negative. Um, and I was like, <laughs> you mean like if it was yes, that would be better? And she used to be like, 
Yeah, that would, that would be a good start. And then, uh, you know, and maybe you could change some of the songs. So, you know, they, uh, and, you know, so we were sort of at loggerheads for a while. Um, we went, uh, then Sony had a, a children's division, which made us an offer. And we were like, okay, we'll, we'll do it. And uh, then they reneged on it. They said, we're, we're not doing any new children's contents. Nobody cares about children's records anymore. So we were like, okay. We went back to Rounder and said, look, you've already given us half the money and you have, you've rejected our album. How about you don't give us any more money, but you like multiply our royalty times four and we set up our own record label and you distribute it. They were like, great, fine. And then it went out of the box and sold, you know, hundreds of thousands of records. And it was, you know, they kicked themselves forever and ever. I mean, I'm sure they had better things to kick themselves about. But it was like, it was a great boon for us. And we did that record with them. And it did so well that Disney approached us and a guy there who was really on board with They Might Be Giants, you know, entire career. And they had a lot of freedom to do it. And it was great. And uh, more probably would have come of it. But uh, Disney, you know, they really wanted to uh, make John and John into characters who would be, you know, stars of their own TV show. And they'd make animated versions of them. And the Johns were just like, no, no, no. We're not Captain Kangaroo. We're never going to be Captain Kangaroo. We'd rather be dead. So, no. No is no, no is always no. If they say no, it means a thousand times no. It, while it was enormously successful and it was it was a, a real and durable second franchise, I don't think it was really what the Johns wanted to do with their career. And as you listen to new material, which I, I find... You know, I I've, I feel like they're still growing as musicians. They're one of the few bands I listen to now that I've listened to for this long and that they still seem to be, like, maybe making their best work. Um, and I think what keeps the Johns interested is that they can take ideas, whether they're likely ideas or not, and they can make them palatable with their songwriting chops. Um, and a case in point is, is the album they put out last year, their 23rd album, uh, Book, which is, you know, a typically strong They Might Be Giants album, but they went this extra mile and packaged it with a hardcover book of artistic photographs, of of interestingly laid out lyrics. Uh, and, you know, I think they like that sense that, okay, well, here's how this album's different. Here's, here's why you might be interested in checking in with this band um, who's been around so long. I don't think I can think of a band that's done that many albums that can even write a good song anymore. I mean, you know, it's like the, I mean, I, I bought every Kinks album there ever was until I think uh, they put out an album called UK Jive and they had been getting worse and worse and worse. I did not begrudge them their top 40 hits, but suddenly they had an album that had no no good songs and it was like a, a, a really sad day. They broke up soon afterwards, but the Johns, like every album's got, you know, multiple great songs. And I, I feel like their uh, song craftsmanship, you know, they've challenged themselves. And um, um, it's so, yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. And, and, you know, sort of the, um, the, emotion and and sentiment in it you know 
I, I, you know, to me, uh, you know, I mean, maybe it's obtuse for some people, but I feel it really strongly. Well, they keep such a stiff upper lip that I've always felt like they would be embarrassed uh, by how much I cry <laughs> when I listen. I just love it. And I, you know, I can't, I can't even believe it. And uh, it just makes me feel um, more certain that, you know, I was right in 1983 when I thought like these guys are going to be writing songs until they drop dead of old age, you know, and they're going to be great. And there'll be, there'll be people who like them. They're not nostalgic for themselves. They don't sit around rehashing their past work. They're already busy with the next thing. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's no real need to uh, stop and look back when, when they're still putting out such great material. I, I think at one point book was maybe proposed to them as like a, coffee table book about the history of They Might Be Giants that was, right. you know, going to have old photos. But uh, they turn it into something, you know, fresh and new and, and and probably much more creatively fulfilling for them. I mean, I think there's the model that, that we've all seen of the rock band that's basically, you know, resting on their laurels or, you know, doing an oldie show or going down memory lane. And that, you know, most bands that drives nuts, you know, when when people go like, "I love your hit from 25 years ago," um, and I haven't, li I did you ever make another record? And you know, of course they did. But um, I think the Johns really live that in a way that you know they can, you know, they're they're a, a working band and a, a, with you know a highly creative uh, output that continues. And I think that's what they prefer to focus on. And um, just as a matter of you know, what's satisfying to them. And they're they're extremely fortunate to be able to do that and that the world cruel place that it is is kind enough to, you know, to have uh, a cozy chair for them. That's all the questions that time will permit. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it right there to ensure that there's nothing more that can be done. That's all the questions that time will permit. I'm afraid we'll have to leave it right there to ensure that there's nothing more that can be done. Doodly 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 do. I noticed in the liner notes to book, it's the first album that doesn't list you on the management line, and yeah. instead you get a thanks. Uh, yeah. And I was wondering about that stepping back, maybe from the day to day of managing the band. The name Peter Smolin has been, you know, creeping up. That's right. What maybe fueled that decision, or what what has that been like? Taking a little bit less of a direct hand. Pete um, w worked for me for you know almost 20 years you know he had become really vital to large parts of the business in ways that i i wasn't you know really that had, a, had to do with touring and you know bookkeeping and things like that and uh i got increasingly involved with other things that i was working on writing and it just seemed like it was the the right thing to do for for him to you know get his name out there and to be um, you know, uh, doing that part of the business. So I think really going forward, I will always be working with MIP Giants and associated with them. And it certainly, you know, to me is the proudest achievement in my life. Uh, you know, uh, it's, there's a, a slightly sad element to it to me, but I think that was the better way to proceed. So I, I will be around, but not uh, in the same role, but certainly you know, speaking to them regularly and, and helping where I can and, and trying to do some projects with them, I think, as they present themselves. But, uh, you know, really, the business was such that they really need Pete's skill set and um, organizational focus in a way that, you know, I'm just not 
really up for. You know, it, it's uh, and 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 the 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 larger issue is is that um, you really you know to have a, a a really vital management company, you really have to keep bringing in new bands and. That's just really not something that I was that interested in anymore. Like, you know, hanging out in clubs with, you know, sweaty 23-year-olds, God bless them. <laughs> so I, I think that's something that, you know, Pete, who's younger and uh, more um, focused on, on on that, will, you know, be better able to do, to have a really, like, to have a, a really good, um, strong company like that. I've always had sort of a bifurcated career writing and um, managing bands. And uh, I have actually have another business now that's taking an incredible amount of my time um, supplying picture cars to uh, movies and television shows, which ties into my historic uh interest in cars. I've always known that about you. And I knew that the Our Roadies Ourselves article was written for an automotive magazine. And yeah. how, how did that get started? Just, it, just, it started at a very uh, um, young age. I was obsessed with cars. Supposedly the first words I said, I was with my parents when I was a, like less than a year old, like 11 months old. And we were driving down the New York's East Side Drive. And I we passed Volkswagen Beetle. And I said, Volkswagen driving. <laughs> My parents weren't particularly interested in cars, um, and uh, my grandparents didn't drive. I don't. I don't know what it was. It was just. I was just an American in those days, and it, it appealed to me from a young age. And I sort of got it, it super into it as I got older. I've just you know read magazines and stuff like that, and it seemed like uh, kind of a dream job. And you know what's been great about my career is that the music industry and the automobile industry have a lot of interesting parallels. And um, one thing that was useful to me professionally was that people in the music business often were more interested in cars than they were in music and vice versa. So, you know, I could bring the auto executives to the gig and I could bring the, um, the, um, bring the, you know, fancy test card to the record company president and get him to spend an hour and a half talking to me where he would have otherwise spent five minutes talking to me. Um, so, yeah, so it's been, it's been great. I wrote for English car magazines for a long time and still do, and that brought me to England a lot, which was really helpful for bands because I would get flown around the world um, by car companies, who, which is how car magazines work, and be able to go take meetings on their behalf um, after the car launch or auto show was over. And, um, and vice versa, you know. So uh, we also got a lot of cars to use um, along the way, which saved lots of money. And also, you know, uh, you had to drive, so I could be doing two jobs at once. Uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's, that's sort of what happened. You know, I, I would say the final chapter has not been written, but uh, Pete is, they're in good hands with Pete uh, and Phil Frandina, who works with him. Um, and... Uh, used to work with me and is and still does a little bit and is a great addition um and uh you know we've we've had a lot of great people who worked with us over the years um you look back and you go like wow that's a lot of people that 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 we we met and uh worked with and worked with the johns and a lot of great musicians and people were still friends and uh yeah so um without getting maudlin yeah it's um it's it's been quite a ride I heard somewhere that you said you divide your time, uh, 
cars and 80% music. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. And I've, I've got a string of ex-partners to show for it. I believe then and believe now that uh, the Giants were, you know, were absolutely worth all the energy you could put into it. And, and you know, and it, it required somebody who was happy to go out in the world to meet strangers and tell them how wonderful this thing was. And I'm not like a, a natural salesman per se, but when, especially when it comes to selling other people, I'm, I feel way more comfortable than I do bragging about myself. Well, I really appreciate your time today, and I don't want to keep you away from uh, music and cars any longer than we have to. But I did want to say that uh, I'm glad the band has had someone like you in their corner all these years, taking care of the business side and, and like hanging in there as they roll forward with this this ambitious and sometimes demanding and, and interesting project. I mean, it can't always have been easy to 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 manage those those strong personalities. Uh, there's you know your your t- basic type A personalities, but but John uh, Flansburg is a triple type A personality, I would say, um, and uh, and I was maybe a double type A personality. So there was never any question as to whether everyone else was working hard enough, you know, um, and uh, that was important, you know, because you know you really have to you have to believe in what you're doing, and and that you know, if you really do, at least in my in my head, that makes you want to work hard because you want to do well. Um, John Linnell works really hard too, but he's a, he's a different um, type of hard worker, you know. He's merely a single type A. Yeah, I would say something like that. And and with, with some recessive B traits, you yeah. know. He likes to shut down sometimes and, you know, have a private life. That's part of the great thing about the Linnell Flansburg partnership is that they, you know, they really take on different tasks. But Flansburg had a much bigger appetite for thinking about the business side of it, thinking about the promotion and marketing side of it. And they they have a very shared uh, sensibility, aesthetic, call it what you will, about what, you know, how they want to be presented. So there was a lot of trust uh, between them about that. And um, the other thing that always struck me about them is that they don't always say, you know, the mean thing they're thinking. Whereas, you know, there are people that I know uh, who um, will say exactly what they're thinking in the moment, and it, no matter how hurtful or insulting it is. And it's destructive. And they, they've largely avoided, I've never seen them have in the entire time I've known them, I've never seen them have like a screaming fight ever. So I've learned a lot from that, that there's, you know, there's, it's always, uh, you know, it's, it's with your partner, it's, it's, it's sometimes a good idea to hold your tongue or to just to reflect on it and think about it. And also to, um, accommodate and uh, not just be patient, but to, to acquiesce to somebody else's strong feelings sometimes, because that's the way partnerships work. It was interesting to watch. Um, I only watched the first episode, but uh, the Beatles get back to watch Lennon and McCartney interact and, and see what each of them brought separately to that. But you could tell that even in this period where they're supposedly really pissed off at each other, um, and it's it's the eve of their dissolution that there's there's a lot of uh, respect and a lot of unconscious thought that goes into respecting the other one and uh, listening to them and you know incorporating their ideas uh, that maybe didn't hold true for the rest of the band but um, I felt like I, I recognized that ingredient in the Johns uh, J- Linnell and Flansburg relationship. 
like there is something about playing to that shared sensibility. Right. Lennon and McCartney both right towards the other. And that documentary really showed me how much they were in the studio, like trying to entertain each other, trying to make each other laugh, trying to catch each other's eye. Right. And I've always thought like, oh, as a songwriter myself, I was wondered what that would be like to have another songwriter who was kind of my equal and opposite number. Right. Who Because it does seem like it would make your ideas feel a little bit more strengthened right out of the gate because it had to pass the gauntlet of this other person who I trust, you know? Right. Ultimately, I think they, you know, they both respect each other, you know, just a ton. Well, that balance seems so important to the whole thing. Like, they have to sort of agree on, like, what's musical and what's a creative solution to the problem of, of, of the pop song. Um, and what's funny, I mean, like, we haven't really talked about humor much in this conversation, but they have to sort of agree on that tone. Um, it's essential to this project that you strike that balance of you can lean into the absurdity of it. You can poke fun at yourself. You can you can laugh a doomed laugh maybe at how fucked we all are. But um, the music, the songs, the lyrics are never about or hardly ever about going for an easy punchline. It's it's music that's funny in the way that life is funny. Which is not always like, haha, funny. Yeah, you you guys have um, uh, talked about that some, and I, I I really felt that you made some good points, uh, just about the nature of how what they do is perceived, and the nature of what people expect from their rock bands and musicians, and and how you know like humor is a real double edged sword, um, where you know I mean. On the one hand, you know, you have a, a, a weird Al or somebody who's obviously just going for yucks all the time. Um, and, you know, there's there's people understand that and they can sort of put, put it somewhere in their head. Uh, and then you have somebody who does what they might be giants do, which is way, way, way more nuanced and complicated and... Uh, you know, as the woman said, funny but sad, um, which is really like more like life, and it just seems way really more responsive to to the human condition um, than than a pure joke band. I mean, no disrespect to to Weird Al. I'll be in the back, and I don't need the help. I'm good here in the back. I'm good all by myself. When I listen to a song like Memo Do Human Resources, which is, you know, it just it just describes such an unhappy person having, you know, fucked up the evening and um, being embarrassed by their own behavior and uh, but wanting to be left alone. How anybody could say that's like a joke, the work of a joke band or a joke, it just, you know, it, it makes me um, fairly grumpy. <laughs> to me, it's just like a, a just a beautiful evocation of how people are misunderstood, how people let themselves down uh and uh you know there's so much of that in they might be giant songs that um so much that's wistful and um kind of painful fans of theirs um you know kind of relate to that you know they're kind of weird but they're kind of normal you know and and they uh and they have feelings but i don't need advice I'll tell you one thing. I'm still mad at Linnell about though. Um, I had a Gibson SG, which I bought in high school, uh, that sounded great. And I was a pretty crappy guitarist, so I didn't really follow it up much. But um, sometime, I think during State Songs, I lent it to him and he lost it. And I was like, oh, man. That scoundrel. Yeah. <laughs> 
on a, on a tour, I'm guessing, while traveling? No, no. He left it in the studio, and then it was gone. And then, oh, you no. know, it's like, I, I, I didn't send him a bill because, you know, that wouldn't have been cool. But um, And I only paid $165 for it, but I was looking a while later, and it was like worth thousands of dollars. Mm. But I'm sure I've cost him more, at least more than that. Uh, so it all works out in the end. <laughs> I do want to kind of maybe just bring this home with a notion of, um, you know, what's going on now? Anything on the horizon? Projects that you're excited about? Anything you'd want to talk about before we uh, before we wind this down? Oh, uh, not really. Um, I'm, uh, personally, I'm I'm working on um, a, uh, a a book about the history of gasoline. That's really about how they put lead into gasoline, um, which is a fascinating story and the great paradigm for all pollution in the 20th century, in my view, which I think is unassailable. Um, but um, uh, so, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about that. And one day I'd like for it to be a, a musical um, with music by They Might Be Giants. Um, but, uh, um, but you know, we'll see if that ever happens. But uh, in the meantime, yeah, no, I'm just, uh, you know, just celebrating good times. You know. <laughs> So on that note, Jens, um, thanks for having me. Um, I hope you can edit edit this into something that sounds coherent. I'm sorry for filibustering. Um, I'm happy to have done it. Thank you for telling your story. Sure. I've I've always been curious about how you met up with the band and and yeah. just you know how how your role over all these years. So thank you for telling us everything. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're 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 great, and I love them. And um, you know, I just uh, I'm I'm looking forward to what they do next. Same here. So long, guys. So long. Yeah, uh, keep up the good fight. Stay in touch, and um, gotta go now. But there's a million other things that uh, I'd be happy to talk about. So let's talk again one day. Oh, that'd be awesome. I'd love to. I'd love that. Okay. Take care. Take Thank care, you so Jamie. Much, Jamie. Bye, Johns. Bye. 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 So we always close out the episode uh, by talking about where people can find us online, um, you know, and I just kind of glibly ask you, but uh, this time I feel kind of wistful, like I need to give it some gravitas. So, Euless, where can people find you online? Oh, yeah, this is heavy. Uh, well, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Moving to the Sun. And I would encourage you, if you're not already a member, to join the uh, Miscellaneous Tea Facebook group. That is uh, one of the only active They Might Be Giants discussion groups on the internet, kind of an old school message board style on Facebook with uh, over 4,000 members. See you there. As for me, I am on Instagram and Twitter at Gianni W. That's G-I-A-N-N-I-D-U-B-Y-A. That is the best place to keep abreast of different things I might be doing, especially music stuff that is coming very soon. My musical alter ego, Sci-Fi, has a single coming out in July and an EP coming in September that he slash I am very excited uh, for you to hear. And if you like to hear me podcast about pop culture, you can hear a very open-ended conversation about movies and television with my friends Ronald and Steve on the show Movie Schmovie, which you can find wherever you look for podcasts. And also, you can look for the feed where I post various miniseries and podcast specials that I do, uh, mostly pop cultural stuff, but there's also some comedy thrown in. And that is called FYIZ, like the call letters of a radio station. Just look for FYIZ on your favorite podcatcher app. And that's pronounced FYIZ? 
is <laughs> FIES. Um, it actually stands for For Your Infotainment, oh, but that is more confusing to explain than not to explain, like everything I do. This world's too cold, so I'm gonna run. I'm moving to the sun. Now, not a lot of people realize that the entire time we've been doing this show, I've been figuratively twisting John Ulysses' arm to make him do the podcast with me. Ow. So now, John, I officially release your arm. Oh, thank God. <laughs> but I have really enjoyed this. It's been a fun way to get to know you, and especially during the uh, pandemic era where nobody was really socializing, it was a great appointment to have. And, um, you know, the people that we've spoken to for this show are among some of my favorite people that I've met in recent years. So it's been a it's been a great experience having this outlet for all of my They Might Be Giants musings, which, of course, will not stop. In fact, you and I will probably uh, be texting back and forth about something related to this band shortly after we stop recording this. That's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah, I feel like you immediately have a million things to talk about when you find out someone is a They Might Be Giants fan. Uh, and we've just talked to so many great people on this podcast who, uh, you know, people we didn't know necessarily were fans or people who were friends of ours who uh, we've never gotten so in depth with. Uh, it's just been uh, an absolute pleasure getting to uh, talk about TMBG and uh, spit up facts from the wiki that have been sitting in my brain for decades. I'll also just note that for me, any kind of creative project that I say I'm going to do and then I set out to do it and then I actually finish what I said I would do. Uh, it is a very strange but welcome sensation. This does, yeah. I, I'm feeling closure right now, maybe. And with that, I guess there's really only one thing left to address, and there's really only one way to go about it. So, uh, if you will. <clears throat> me, 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 me. La, 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 la. Now we have to go. Here we go. Watch us go. What if I don't wanna go? But you do. Maybe so. Just don't look for us next week. Yeah, we won't be back next week. Cause this never, never was, was a weekly show. show.